hearts and our minds to hear your word, Lord. In your name, amen. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. Hey, a little late, yeah. <laughs> oh, if we could only start over though, right? Um, hey, uh, my name is Jesse, if I haven't met you yet, and uh, part of the pastoral team here, we're in a series, the book of Haggai, so if you uh, have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn there. I think it's the third to last book in the Old Testament. Uh, or if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of these guys would love to let you use one of ours. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep this one as a gift from us to you. Um, but we're going to be in there in a moment. And uh, I'm going to mention a couple things here real quickly uh, before we um, get into uh, the Word. One is if you are new, please download our app. Go to our webpage, download uh, that on your phone uh, or your tablet that has all our information and you have an opportunity to sign up for our newsletter. We send that out every week, tells you everything that is happening uh, in our church and what we're up to and what we're doing. Uh, and then in addition to that, obviously most of the world's eyes are on Ukraine and Russia and what's happening over there. And I know many of you are praying and asking how you can help. I want to give you a couple pieces of information that'll be helpful for you. Uh, one, we do support uh, Awana. Awana is a, uh, a ministry that helps pour into kids. It helps them teach, uh, study the Bible, helps them to memorize scripture. We support Jeff Gilpin. He's an Awana missionary. Awana is a, a wonderful program. We've had it here at our church for a long time. Uh, there, uh, there are 548 churches in Ukraine currently that have an Awana program. Uh, they serve roughly 25,000 children. Uh, so be praying for them, their leaders, their churches, their pastors. In addition to that, uh, we support uh, an organization called CAMA, which stands for Compassion and Mercy Associates. Uh, they help, uh, they're currently helping right now give funds for uh, food for those who uh, need food in Ukraine. They're helping with travel for those who are trying to get out of the area. They're also helping with housing. And so if you want to uh, donate to CAMA, you can do that. Just put that in uh, your envelope uh, or on your check, and we'll make sure that those funds go directly uh, to CAMA and into Ukraine. And of course, be praying. I, I saw one post uh, from one of my pastor buddies said Ukraine's kind of giving a gift to the world, and, and specifically not Ukraine, but specifically the Christians in Ukraine who are praying and singing and worshiping. If you haven't seen any of those clips, uh, I'd encourage you to check them out because those individuals are showing us what the church should look like in the midst of confrontation, in the midst of persecution. Uh, they keep worshiping Jesus. And so I think that's pretty beautiful. Um, and Carol's going to come up. She's going to announce an opportunity uh, to an opportunity to pray uh, for 40 days of life. And so she's going to give you a little bit of information on that. So this is Carol. Darn, you gave away my punchline. Good morning. How are y'all? <laughs> so Jesus said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And that's Mark 10, verse 14. So I'm going to give you some facts. 20,728 lives have been saved. 229 workers have quit. 114 centers have been closed. One million volunteers have participated. 20,000 churches are involved. And 9,207 local campaigns go on. This is a worldwide organization that was started in 2007, and 64 countries are currently involved. So what organization is this? 40 days of life. And I call it 40 days for life because that is really what it is about. So the visible centerpiece for 40 days of life is a 40-day nonstop prayer vigil outside abortion clinics. It's peaceful and it provides an educational experience for those who show an interest. The vigil sends a powerful message to the community about the tragic reality of abortion. I've walked the sidewalks, and I cannot tell you how blessed I've been. But you know what? It's not about me. It's about glorifying God. And Jesse, in his wonderful message this morning, 
is going to talk about how we all have to get to work. And I realize that some of you serve in many, many areas, and we thank you for that. So the campaign days this year are Monday through Friday. Those are the most important days, but you can also go on weekends. It's March 3rd through April 10th. It's in Reno, near the airport. And men, women, children, and entire families are encouraged to go. Now I'm going to give you some benefits, because everybody loves benefits. So first of all, a flexible time frame. You can do one hour to as long as you want. You can fellowship with other Christian believers. You can have extended time in relationship with our Father God. You can have an opportunity to make a difference in family lives. You get supportive honks and shouts by passerbys, and maybe a few other things. <laughs> but then we just raise our hands in praise. <laughs> and an opportunity to pray for those who still live in the darkness of sin. Signs and everything that you need will be supplied in the large truck at the site, and it's well marked. So here are some other benefits. Girls, lots of exercise, and miles on your Fitbit. <laughs> Fresh air and vitamin D. Can you ask for anything better? So for those of you who know Mavis Bowes, it would be an opportunity as well to go visit her over near Renown in the care center, because she'll be there for three more weeks. So in conclusion, um, I have information sheets which are available to take, and it has all the directions and everything you need. And there's also a sign-up sheet for carpooling. And so I really, really encourage you to please sign up. And um, you know what? These babies and moms, and I'm sorry, I'm going to cry, need you. They really need you. And this is a way that's so easy to serve God. Thank you so much. Okay. She took away my last point of the sermon, so I... So I'll do a better job than she did. I'm just kidding. Hey, welcome again. Um, Haggai, we're going uh, to give you a, a quick backdrop uh, as we've been in this book for a couple weeks now, three weeks, and then also uh, we'll be in it for a few more weeks, and then uh, we'll do a couple other things, and then eventually we'll be jumping into the book of Mark. But um, if you remember, remember God's people, uh, they've kind of had a, a, ten a, a tension uh, of his, their relationship with the Lord has been a little kind of wonky, if you will. And, uh, and God said, listen, if you don't repent and you don't focus on me and you don't return back to me, you're going to go into captivity. And many prophets prophesied this, and sure enough, uh, they did not. And the Babylonian Empire came, captured the Jewish people, brought them 900 miles away from Jerusalem, where they were in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied during that time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Persian Empire came, wiped out the Babylonian Empire, and King Cyrus uh, let, the, let the people go. And he said, listen, you can go back. I'm going to give you finances. I'll give you money. Go back to Jerusalem, build the temple. And so about 50,000 individuals, 50,000 people went back from the Babylonian Empire back down to Jerusalem with the mission to build the temple. And if you haven't been here, you'll know that they kind of had several excuses for not building the temple. They went back with the charge to build. It took them 16 years to get there. And their reasons that they didn't, according to the text that we've read in Ezra, which was happening along the same time as this, one, it's, it's not the time. It's not time for it. They didn't have time. Two, they were distracted by their comfort. They were building their own paneled houses and decorating their own homes, taking care of their, themselves. Ezra says they were deterred by opposition. The Samaritans didn't want them to build the temple. They were busy with their own house. And they were also discouraged by the results that the new temple, Zerubbabel's temple, which it's called, was not going to be as glorious as Solomon's temple. And so they delayed. And God said, there's consequences to your delay. You sow much, you harvest little. You 
eat, but you're not filled. You drink, but it's never enough. You're clothed, but you are not warm. And you earn money, but it just keeps falling through holes in your bag. All of this to be said, you're not doing the job that I've called you to do. You're not obeying me. And since you're not obeying me, these are the consequences. Now, this morning, we remember now, Haggai has about four to five messages, depending on how you segment them. But it's about a four-month period. The first message that we covered last week uh, was August 29th, around 520 B.C. Now, about three weeks later, September 21st, the people finally respond. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about what it is to respond to the Lord. The, the tag for the message this morning is a repentant remnant response. A repentant remnant response. And so let's dive into the word together this morning, and we will see what God has for us. And as you no, we love God's word, and if you're new, this is a practice we have not to just be traditional or religious, but because we love God's word, we want to position our hearts and our bodies to receive from the Lord. Would you stand with me as we read from Haggai chapter 1, verse 12? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month and the sixth month and the second year of Darius the king. And so, Lord, we, we need you. Lord, we're dependent upon you. In fact, Lord, we know we need nothing else but you. So I pray that you would breathe your life into us this morning through your word, that you would mold us and to shape us into your image, that we would live not in fear but in faith, and that we would live courageously for you, Lord, and for your glory. We trust you now to comfort our hearts and to strengthen our souls. Give us vigor now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so what's the response? The, the, the first response, according to the text, is a swift, a swift act to obey. That's the first point this morning. Notice, notice the pattern, and this is a typical pattern and basically almost all of Scripture, it's a typical pattern, I think, in, in receiving any kind of freedom in our lives. The first thing that must happen is that the, the church, the people, us, we have to listen carefully to the Word of God. Right? Remember the, the text that we've read earlier in chapter 1, as well as other places within Haggai, it says, give careful thought to your ways. Or as the Hebrews would say, take your heart, put it on the road, and see if that's the road that you're supposed to be on. Listen carefully. Uh, now, before we get to the rest of the response of reading the word and responding to the word, I, I think it's important for us to just kind of do a, a, a little bit of understanding of why I think this is a little problematic within the American church. Because the American church isn't always known for its swift obedience to the word of God. In fact, it's not really totally known for preaching the word of God as it should be taught uh, and I'll explain that more here in a moment. But one reason I think that we're not swift to listen to the Word of God is because we have a tremendous accessibility to the Word of God that has never existed in the period of human history ever. I mean, I, I just want you to think back. And you, you know, I quote him often, and I, I love this, but I just absolutely love the story of Martin Luther, right? Luther was a man who, through journeying through Scripture and, and realizing that we're saved by grace and grace alone and nothing else, he began to realize the Catholic Church was maligning the Word of God. Now, if you remember, way back in the 1500s, the, the preacher preached in Latin. You know the common people didn't preach Latin. Only the educated ones did. So you would sit in church, and if you think I'm boring, try listening to me preach in another language you don't understand. And what ended up happening is Luther knew this was problematic, and after he broke from the Catholic Church... He ended up taking off and hiding for a few years to take the Latin word and turn it into the common tongue of German. And for the very first time, the common man, the common woman, had the word of God in their hands. But before that, 
That wasn't common. And now in your pocket exists almost probably every translation there is. We have tremendous accessibility to it. And so there's a part of us that forgets how radical, how beautiful, and how amazing this written word of God is to us. Another reason is there's constant attacks on scripture, isn't there? Don't believe it. It's outdated. It's oppressive. And it's none of those things, if we're clear. It, it, it brings freedom. It brings light. It brings true life. But nonetheless, sometimes we allow the culture to dictate what we believe of Scripture. Uh, we call this eisegesis. This is kind of a theological term of when somebody reads Scripture, reads the Word of God through the lens of the culture. And so when the culture begins to popularize sexuality and, and human freedom to do whatever you want, if it feels good, do it which is the book of Judges, by the way. Each man did according to what was right in his own eyes. Uh, things fall apart. But I said, Jesus is to say, okay, I, I believe scripture, but, but I'm gonna let the culture uh, help me interpret the scripture. Uh, another, another way of, uh, I didn't even know this one existed until a few weeks ago studying uh, some of this stuff. There's another term in addition to I said, Jesus, uh, and that term is called Jesus. You ever heard of that term? It's new to me. But Jesus is reading yourself into the scripture, using yourself as the one that's in scripture. The, the common uh, one that's used amongst kind of reform folks as, as an example of this is the story of David and Goliath. If you're familiar with that story, sometimes uh, uh, pastors have been guilty of standing up and saying, you know, you're David, and if you have the right stones, and you throw the right stones, and you have enough faith, and you throw that rock at your Goliath, and what's your Goliath in your life? What kind of things are you trying to overcome in your life? What's your Goliath? And if you just have the right stones, you can overcome. You're David. The problem with that is uh, no stone is big enough in your pocket to kill Goliath, because once you start to do the correct work, which is not narcissus, but exegesis, not eisegesis, you recognize that David is an example and a picture of Jesus. Goliath is an example and picture of Satan. And the only way one overcomes the Goliath of Satan is through Jesus. You can't do it. You can't do it. You're not David. Jesus is the better David. Now, these are all reasons why sometimes we don't read and listen carefully to Scripture. We don't have a, a high enough view, I don't think, at times at the beauty of it because of the abundance and the attack and all the different ways we can read the Word. So the first part of obedience is we have to listen carefully to the Word, and then we have to consider our ways. That's the first part of Haggai. Consider your ways. Are, are they going to lead you to the right spot? Is it going to be fruitful for you? And once you consider your ways, hopefully you're finding areas of your life that are not in line with God's way of life. Right? You consider your ways and you start recognizing, okay, this is a little out of place. This isn't right. Uh, my marriage isn't what it should be here. And, and I need to make a change. And once you realize what is out of line, you then obey swiftly in making correct change. That is the message of repentance. That's the message John the Baptist came preaching to prepare the way of the Messiah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance is just a fancy word for changing your life to be in line with God's life. This is obedience. Now, now they act swiftly. It takes three weeks from message one to message two. And some of you might say, well, they delayed three weeks. And I would say, uh, I think probably what is more realistic in that three weeks is after they heard the message, the, the Zerubbabel, who is uh, the, the, what is he? He's the, um, uh, help me out. Joshua is the high priest. Zerubbabel is the king political figure. Thank you for not helping me. And so <laughs> finally, these guys, along with Haggai the prophet, these three men get together in unity, and they're working together in unity for the first time probably in 70 years. And I think probably what's more realistic during those three weeks is they were assessing their materials and, and what they had and what they needed to get. Remember, it says, go. He tells the people, go into the mountains, get the wood and bring it to me that the house may be built, that the temple would be built. And remember, they've delayed for 16 years. Now, all of a sudden, it takes them three weeks and they begin to do things differently. They obey. When the word of God goes forward, the only response for God's people, for God's remnant, 
is to respond. And I want you to see something really interesting here because it's quite beautiful. Look at verse 2. And and some of you remember this from last week, that the Lord responds to the people in this way. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people. Okay, when you start to look at the language here, this is not a positive term of endearment, right? If I introduce my kids as these people, you know I might have an issue with them. I I never introduce my wife as this person. This is my wife and she has a name. And her name is Allie. And if you're me, you can call her Allison. If you're not me, you can't, right? They move from these people, these people, to look at the text we're in this morning in the, uh, verse 12. What does he call them here? With all the what? The remnant. The people, because they respond in obedience, God's title of his people, in essence, seems to kind of change. His heart changes towards them from these people to my remnant. What is a remnant? It's a small group of people. In fact, Isaiah prophesies uh, in, in regards to this that literally a remnant, a small group of people will go back to Jerusalem. And that remnant is a community of people who are dedicated to God, dedicated to God's word, and dedicated to being obedient. I think this has New Testament implications for us as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It's interesting because this is one of those verses that talks about the end days, the end times. I'm seeing a lot of rustling and rumbling and talking amongst Christians online and here and in the church, and the question that is being asked is, is this the end days? You know what the answer is? Yeah. It was the last days with Jesus. It's the last days now. And the Bible tells us literally to be looking for these aches and pains and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars as the beginning of but birth pains for something that is coming that is even greater. Uh, For those of you ladies who have had children, you know that birth pains are excruciating. Men, you have no idea. And I say that as a man, right? But what comes after birth pains? Beauty. So these rumors of wars and the actual wars themselves are but a reminder that something greater is coming, Jesus. And, and, and what we're seeing and what we've seen in the last few years, I think, in regards to this verse in Thessalonians is the church as a remnant is kind of popping up today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What is this word rebellion? That word rebellion literally means apostasy or abandonment. The encouragement to the church in the last days will will be because of culture, because of rumors of wars, because of sin, that people will run away from the church. Now, Now, you've heard me say this, and it needs to be repeated so you understand the state of the church, not the state of our church, but the state of the American church. Church attendance by large is down 30 to 40%. People aren't coming back to church. If you left church two years ago, there's a good chance you're still not coming back to church because in your mind, you've realized that probably the church was only meeting your felt needs. And during the last couple of years, you realize, well, Netflix and binge watching and Instagram and social media can meet my felt needs. See, the church doesn't exist to meet your felt needs. The church exists to bring you from these people to the remnant, to be God's people. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 24, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. How many? Many. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That last verse is where we we get the term, the perseverance of the saints. See, the great apostasy is not people who were once saved who then become unsaved. The great apostasy is the revealing of those who never were really saved but were only following Jesus for Jesus' stuff rather than Jesus himself. 
right? There's, there's a way that appears godly, appears fruitful, but in reality, it's not really you following after the Lord. Now, John 10, 27 says it like this. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I will, I will grab them, he says, and none of them shall perish, right? If you're his sheep, he saves you, he holds on to you, and he says, no one will snatch them from my hand because I am greater than all. Who's, who's no one? No one, <laughs> including you. So here's the good news. If you're part of the remnant, the ones who have responded swiftly to the Lord in obedience, you are his forever and ever and ever and ever and evermore. Amen? Amen. We're secure in him. And this remnant has an individual and a communal response. As an individual, we have to take time to study the word of God for ourselves. We have to approach it as revelation and then respond to it appropriately, but it also has a communal response. That as a group of people, we must do this together as a community. As Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching, fellowship, and breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the word and to Christ and to Jesus and obedience. So we need to do this together, yeah? We have a response as a people together because the days are growing darker. And, the, and we are in those end times. I was, uh, I've been listening to these uh, podcasts that have just been a refreshment for my soul. And it, it's all on expository preaching and, and uh, from Master's uh, Theological Seminary. And they're done really well. They got good music on it and stuff, and, and which makes it sound cooler than it is, you know. Uh, music makes everything sound awesome, right? I mean, it, there's a part of me that wishes I could preach to music because I would sound better. And, but anyways, I've been listening to it. It's just been refreshing me. And, and uh, the, the one podcast I listened to in the gym this week uh, was on the nine, Grace Church's 9-11 response, right? And as soon as I mention 9-11, every single one of us goes right back to where we were when, when we saw those towers fall or get hit or, right? All of us remember. All of you are right there right now. I just know you're in your head right now in that spot. You see the towers. You see the planes. You see the flames. You see the panic, and you see the worry. And I don't know about you, but I was part of a really large church in Southern California, and that following Sunday, church was filled to the brim. Thousands and thousands of people. And, and as you know, slowly but surely, as time progressed, what happened to that church attendance? Well, only the remnant was left. People wanted to hear from the Lord. And, and so uh, in this podcast, they were talking about John MacArthur's uh, response to 9-11, and I just have to share it with you because it, it, it's that good. I wish I would have thought of it, and I didn't, but he literally, he literally got up at the pulpit that Sunday morning as the church was completely packed to the gills, and, and he went on to explain that we have witnessed, we have seen one of the most dramatic events in history, and that dramatic event in history changes everything. It's going to change the way we think, change the way we live, change the way we talk. That event has changed everything. And then he went on to say, that event is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Took the focus off of the event and right back where it needed to be, the cross. Right? And the remnant hears the word of God, obeys the word of God, responds to the word of God, and keeps Jesus at the center all the time. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what frustrations occur, we go back to the death, back to the crucifixion, and more importantly, back to the resurrected Christ that we serve. What's happening in the world? But birth pains to bring about new life and a new world with a new world order, that will be ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So they respond swiftly, and there will be people who turn away. May we not be those people. And I think the text shows us why they respond so swiftly. Look again at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people what? Feared. Again, this is a correct response to the word of God. Now, I think 
there are several different layers of fear that we could tease out in this for, for us this morning. The first one is, I think they feared, literally feared, the consequences of their sin. And that's a, uh, that is a rational response, that if I sin, something bad might happen. That, that's not an, an error to teach that. Okay, the people just had probably on their minds, okay, we didn't obey last time, and we spent 70 years in Babylon. Let's not do that again. Let's be obedient. There's a great verse when Cain kills Abel and God sees that Cain's spirit is down and God says this to, to Cain. He says, if you do well, will not your spirit be lifted up? I mean, isn't that a reality that when we are walking in faith and we're being obedient to Christ, our spirit feels light. But when we feel heavy and oppressed, it's probably because we're not being obedient in something to the Lord. And I'm gonna tell you right now, the only response for healing in your life, if you wanna be healed of anything, it's repentance. It's changing your ways. If you want your spirit to be light and not be heavy, and if you want to be a, the remnant that God has called us to be, well, we have to fear the Lord. Now, there is that fear of, okay, you know, the punishment could happen, but that's not the only connotation that this fear has. Fear is also an understanding of how holy God is. Right? It's putting God in his place and putting man in his place. It's one of the reasons why I believe in the doctrine of total depravity because it's the only doctrine that teaches us how bad man is and how beautiful and amazing God is. Right? Total depravity is the reality that we're born in sin where scripture says no one seeks after God, no one, you're dead in your trespasses, right? You're a slave to unrighteousness. These are the verses that describe us before becoming the remnant. These are these people kind of language, right? That, that, that's what all of that kind of states. But when we finally put God where he's at, he's holy, he's righteous, and, and we're, we're but dust, we were made of dirt. You know, scientists have proved that the same elements that are in you are the same elements of the dust. For dust you came and for dust you shall return. One of my favorite, and I mean this, this is one of my favorite YouTube clips is a clip of R.C. Sproul with several other pastors doing a Q&A at the end of one of the conferences. And someone texted in, because that's a thing you can do now, right? You can text in your question. And R.C. Sproul was asked this question. Actually, the whole panel was asked this question. And this was the question. If God is so merciful and so compassionate and so gracious, why was Adam's punishment so severe? And everyone's silent. And if you know R.C. Sproul, and Joe Casey loves R.C. Sproul here as well. And you know, R.C. Sproul always held his microphone like this. slouched in his chair. And as he answered the question, he leaned forward and he basically said, what is wrong with you people? And he went on to explain his frustration. He said, this is what's wrong with the church. God rebelled against the holy God. Adam. <laughs> I ended up being a heretic real quick. Adam rebelled against a holy and righteous God. God said, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And as R.C. Sproul began to explain, he said, instead of dying, God allowed Adam to live another day. He even allowed him to have a family and then he even clothed Adam and Eve. And instead of dying on that day, God gave him another day. Right, Romans is really, really clear. This was also in part of MacArthur's message on that 9-11 day. The wages of sin is death. When you ask why 9-11, why Ukraine, why aborted babies? Because the wages of sin is death. And it's only through a relationship through Jesus Christ that one comes alive. But, but my friends, the church, you and I, the remnant, we have to put God on his throne. And you have to allow man to be what he is, the created we must humble ourselves in the righteous eyes of God as he knows all and he sees all and he judges all. 
So there is these connotations of fear that can be earth-shaking, earth-shattering, and I think they should be, but ultimately fear is also trusting God, knowing that he loves you and knowing that he's for you and knowing that ultimately you are completely saved by grace. We'll get to more of that in a moment, but I, I wanted to show you a wonderful chart I came across in regards to how we are saved. Are you ready? It's complicated. It's going to take a little bit of work to look at it. We're saved by the grace of God. That's in red. And then we're saved by the grace of God, but that's in white. I know it's stupid. But it makes a point of us understanding that that we are saved by grace and God continues to save us by grace and we must have a holy fear of that reality. You're not saved because you're good, friends. You're not saved because you've done enough. You're saved because God saved you. I'm going to build on that here in a moment. But, but that fear, that fear allows them to respond. But I think the other motivation to bring them to that obedient response is found in verse 13. And it's a beautiful verse. And here we see that God literally says to the people, once they've responded in obedience, what? I am with you. That's grace. You know why this is so important? Because the people in their minds had thought the presence of God is not amongst us unless we have a temple, unless we have a tabernacle. If we don't have a temple and if we don't have a tabernacle, there's no presence of God and the temple isn't even being built yet and now God is declaring to them, I'm with you not because of the building, I'm with you because you're my people, I am for you. And he's for us as well, church. And if he's for us, who can be against us. I mean, this is a beautiful thing because the people, the people finally repent, right? They, they turn their face to God and what they find is God has already been facing them. What's the New Testament equivalent of this? The story of the prodigal son. Remember this story? The prodigal son says, hey, dad, I want my inheritance now. I'm sure that was a wonderful conversation for the father. But you know what? I, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what he's thinking, but dad breaks out the checkbook and he gives his son his inheritance. So one son leaves, the other son stays to serve the father. The son takes his settlement, his his inheritance, and he does with that money what any young man does with money when they've not had money before. Spends it all on women and partying and having a good time. And he blows through his inheritance and he wakes up where? In a pig pen. I'm sure hungover is all get out, just groggy headed, broke, and he's in the pig pen and he thinks to himself, I, I got to go back. I got to go back to dad. I got to humble myself at least, at least maybe, and this is the kind of logic in his mind, maybe, maybe, maybe he'll let me be a slave and a servant in his house because surely it's got to be better being a slave to dad than to be living in a pig pen. And so he humbly takes himself out of that pig pen and he begins the long, shame-filled, guilt-ridden journey back home to talk with dad. And as he comes over the horizon, dad's already looking for him. Dad's already waiting for the sun to come. And instead of waiting for him with his hands crossed, the dad runs into the field. And he runs to his son. He doesn't even let his son speak, but he takes his robe of honor and dignity and he places it over his son and he takes him and he brings him home and then he throws him a party. And all the while, the other son's in the background and what's he thinking? This is nonsense. I stayed behind. I served. I'm waiting for my inheritance. I'm doing all the right things. Uh, I'm doing everything right. I don't get a party. What is happening here? And here's the reality. Here's the lesson of that particular passage. Neither of the sons wanted the father. They wanted the father's stuff. And it wasn't until the one son came home repentant where he was admitting, I no longer care about my dad's stuff. I just want my dad. I just want his presence. This is what God wants to give his church, his presence. This is what the church needs more than anything else, is God's presence. 
We don't need a building. We don't need big budgets. We don't need children's programming. We need none of those things. We need more God's presence. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, Lord, this is the prayer of Isaiah, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down the mountains, quaked at your presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it kind of like this. He says, the reason why men and women outside the, are outside of the church, in essence, why they're not saved, is they don't know God. They don't know his name. And they'll never know it until they see a manifestation of it. And so we pray, descend, come down, rend the heavens that these adversaries may know thy name. Nothing will make them listen but that. We've tried everything else to the shame of the church. Have we not? The church has never been so brilliant in her organizations as she is at the present time. And she's been during the whole of the century. She's using every means that the world can use and give her. But the statistics keep repeating themselves this miserable tale. What is the matter? These people don't know the name of the Lord. And there's only one thing we can do. We must pray to him to rend the heavens and to make his name known so that not only may they know it, but further so that the nations may tremble at thy presence. That knowing the name of the Lord, they may begin to fear him and to desist from sin. Man, you know what this is a call to for us, church? You know, this is a call for us as a congregation to pray that the presence of Jesus falls in the Tahoe Basin and his name is known. That is our only hope. And the reality is, is that, that this is a now thing. His presence is here. Right? You remember the passage in John, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. This is speaking of Jesus. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. It, it means templed. Right? It, currently, now, Jesus, as he walked, was the temple. It's amongst us. He's amongst us. And then soon, look at I'm waiting for this one, Revelation 7. Oh, I, I, just, I could read this over and over. Listen to what it says here. This is speaking of heaven. This is the future for us. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where do they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. End days. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a beautiful verse. The robes were dirty. They were soiled. They've been made white. How? By the sinless blood of Jesus. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with what? His presence. You remember I told you the consequences of their sins in Haggai? They'll eat, but not be filled. They'll drink, but they'll still be thirsty. Look at verse 16. They'll hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the lamb, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Oh, come on. This is where I almost wish I was Pentecostal, you know? <laughs> it just starts screaming and dancing. Because this is, this is going to be a beautiful day. This is going to be a beautiful day for us as a church. And it's a day where we won't hunger, we won't thirst, our tears will be wiped away. Why? Simply because the presence of God is complete. It's a beautiful deal. But you know what? you can't take credit for any of this. And the, the part of Haggai, it, it actually shows us in the passage why we can't take credit for it. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's mentioned three times in one verse. The Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel. The Lord stirred the spirit of Joshua. And the Lord stirred the spirit of the remnant the only way a person has the ability to do anything 
is because God stirs one's spirit. Now, this is important so you understand that it's not a work of human achievement. I can yell and scream and be passionate, but that doesn't move your heart. That doesn't really change you. What changes you is the Spirit of God. The presence of God comes, the Spirit of God moves inside of you, and He gives you the ability to do the things you should, to be obedient. Some of us are in this place where, how come I can't be more obedient? How come I can't work hard enough? How come I can't do more? Because it's not about doing more. It's about knowing him fully, allowing him to move you. I really appreciate the Westminster Confession. And in fact, I, I appreciate all confessions, and I, no, I should say all. I do appreciate confessions like the Westminster Confession as well as certain catechisms. There's a new one called New City Catechisms based off Westminster Catechism. And the reason for that is because I think it's very important that the church knows what they believe and why they believe it. Because if not, if not, then we will turn from the right things uh, and go to the wrong things. And this is essentially what the Westminster Confession says in regards to us being rooted in the Lord and rooted in his spirit. Look at what it says here before us. Their ability, that's the church as a whole, to do good works is not of all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. In order that they may be enabled to do these things beside the grace as believers have already received, there must also be an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them, to will and to do of his good pleasure. This truth, truth, however, should not cause a believer to be negligent as though he were not bound to perform any duty without a special moving of the Spirit, rather. They ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. See, what the confession says is you have the grace of God in you, and it's our response, our swift, obedient response to put ourselves in any position we can to allow God to stir the graces in our hearts that we would respond correctly to God. And again, back to my hobby horse here on the confessions, if we do not catechize our kids, and if we don't know what we believe, then we're going to have to re-evangelize our children. Let me get to the, the takeaway here for, for us this morning. Give me a few more moments. I was thinking of, of this word work. As Carol mentioned earlier, that, that again, since the Spirit has stirred us and God's Word has come into our lives, we have to be obedient to it. We've got to see what areas of our lives are not in line with God's and ask God to change our hearts to change those ways. And once we, we do that, we get to this place where then we have to respond. And the response, again, is, is again, Carol said it, work. You see that in the text, right? They, they, they get to work. They pick up their tools and they respond. And again, some would say, okay, is it taking three weeks here? What was going on? I think they're calculating their tools and they're getting their materials ready. Any good builder knows that they got to calculate the costs, right? You don't just build a building, do you, Ty? You got to have some plans, especially in Truckee, about $30,000 worth of plans before you build, and that usually takes a long time. But eventually you get to that place and you respond because your spirit is moving and you work. The Bible tells us time and time again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Church, we've got we've to work. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about the time I first remember in Scripture where God spoke to me as an individual through reading the word about what kind of work I needed to be about. And, and uh, 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 some of you won't relate to this because, you know, you didn't go through what I went through, and I understand that. But I, I went up, uh, I went down to San Diego trying to get my life right, and I jumped into uh, a school of ministry. It was called the School of Evangelism at the time. It no longer exists, unfortunately, but it was a wonderful school for me. It was the right place. And I got a big binder so I could take all my notes, and on the front of the binder sat this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Do the work of what? An evangelist. 
That word work means to be occupied with, to toil, to labor, to be preoccupied with, to do something, to do the work of an evangelist. And it became apparent to me that, that God was calling me to be somebody that was going to do this particular work. And as I've matured over the years, I've, I've recognized something in this passage that I didn't recognize before. If you remember, we went through Timothy, 1 Timothy, not that long ago. And if you read Timothy, and if you read Titus, it is filled with a lot of really heavy doctrine and a lot of heavy kind of theology. It's actually where we, where Paul, Paul literally, as he's training young Timothy, he says, Timothy, okay, you're gonna be a pastor, you've got to teach doctrine. And when you teach doctrine, you've got to train up men, other men who will teach good doctrine. And then you come to 2 Timothy and he mentions evangelism. And the reason I'm saying this is because you cannot disassociate heavy, heady, important spiritual doctrine from evangelism. You can't separate the two. This is why I get frustrated personally with parachurch organizations who say, we're just going to be all about evangelism. And then they get saved. Someone gives their life to Christ, especially a young person. They finally give their life to the Lord. And that parachurch organization and the rest of the church would say, amen, he's been evangelized, he's going to heaven. And then that young child goes to college. (laughs) And as Timothy would say, doctrines of demons are taught. And all of that spiritual stuff and all of that Bible stuff and all of that Jesus stuff and all that doctrine stuff and all that theology stuff erodes that young person's faith and they turn from Jesus and we wonder, how did that happen? Because they were not taught to anchor their beliefs in the eternal word of God. That goes back to, again, that hobby horse I mentioned, you got to catechize. You got to know what you believe and you got to know why you believe it and you've got to be dedicated to do the work of study. That's what all of Timothy is about. And then there's this verse that says, do the work of evangelism. He's combining the two. We're not to do evangelism here and doctrine and teaching here. We're to do both. In fact, I would say that I think it's good doctrine Good theology, right doctrine, right theology when taught brings someone to salvation and ultimately glorifies God. How dare we believe something about God that isn't true, that's offensive to God. We have to believe what God says about himself. Again, God says, build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. And so there's work to be done for us, isn't there? We have to pick up our tools, which is the word of God. You've got to study it. Remember I said there's an individual response, there's a communal response. We do it individually, we do it communally, we do it, and then we get to work. There's all kinds of different work for us, isn't there? Some of us are called to the work of evangelism. Some of us have that gift. I do believe that. Some of us are better teachers than others. Some of us are better communicators than others. But all of us have a particular kind of work that we need to do in our homes. I've been repeating this to one of my friends uh, recently. My first calling is to my home. And if I don't evangelize and disciple and catechize and spend time with my family, Timothy is told by Paul, you are disqualified from the work of the ministry. Can I just say to you men in the room, your job is to love your wife first. Above all work, That is to love Christ. That's why he says in Ephesians, what? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Some of us have work to do at work. Some of us have more work to do in the church. But I also need to add this caveat because we are in America and I know some of you and I know some of your tendencies and I'm not saying this if you're this particular person other than I just know this is a reality. I don't want to pick on some of you, but I do need to be honest with some of you Some of you men need to work less so that you can work on the other things that are more important. You're not helping your family with 80-hour work weeks. You're not helping your family if you're absent. You are called to be 
a type of Jesus, not Jesus to your family, and remember the words that Jesus speaks through Haggai to his people, I am with you. Guys, we have a call to be with our children, with our wives. Right? This is the message in this second part of chapter 1. God has spoken. The people are swift to respond because they fear the Lord. And they recognize that God has stirred their hearts to get to the right kind of work. Sometimes just being busy doesn't mean you're really working, does it? As I mentioned last week, Stephen Lawson says two hours in the morning is worth four hours in the afternoon. I was speaking with someone this, uh, this week and I was asking them about their schedule and uh, their, the husband and wife as a team, they get up every morning at 4 a.m. As soon as she said it, I vomited. If I'm honest, probably a little bit of conviction there. They mentioned it's a time where there's an opportunity to work out, an opportunity to, to pray and to study their Bible before the kids get up. Because God knows kids don't get up at 4 a.m. They only get up at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 1 a.m., and then 6 a.m. So you got 4 to 6, right? A time to just enjoy the Lord and to spend time with God to let his presence be with you. I wonder where God would call you this morning to get to a better kind of work. As I close, I'll close with this quote in regards to work, that it is a glorious thing. And if you're starting to grow lazy, I summon you back to joy. God made us to work and he formed our minds to think and our hands to make. He gave us strength, little or great, to be about the business of altering the way things are. That is what work is. Seeing the world, thinking of how it could be better, and then doing something. From the writing of a note to the building of a boat, from the sewing of what you wear to the praying of a prayer, come leave off sloth and idleness. Become what you were made to be and work. And it's not to work for your glory. And it's not to work for a church's glory, as in Sierra Bible Church. It's to work for the glory of God. That he would be elevated, and that he would come down, and his presence would be made known, and we would hear him speak to his people, and his people would be swift to respond, and the church would grow because Jesus is in the business of building his church still. He is still building his church and those statistics of 30, 40% decrease in attendance don't worry me because he's still going to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And guess what? When he's done building his church, we'll all know. We will know. Because we will ascend with him on high. And we will be there for eternity with no more tears, as Revelation says. What a glorious day that will be. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we ask that your word would go forth from this place as often as possible. We ask that you would stir our hearts for us to be in your word, that you would stir our hearts to get involved in areas where we can be in the word. Stir us, Lord, so that we can act swiftly and be obedient to you that we would have a healthy fear of you, that we would recognize that you have called us not to laziness, but to work for your kingdom. Lord, as you prayed so beautifully well, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We trust you for that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
treasures here below. Praise Him.